Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Every Square Inch. My name is Robert Cunningham, and this is part two of a three-part series I'm doing on race in America. Uh, Obviously, there is um, no more prevalent discussion to have right now as our world in general and America specifically finds itself embroiled in the topic. And as I said in part one, I, I just don't think that American Christianity is ready for the moment that is upon us. And so I suppose this is my attempt to hopefully add some perspective, nuance, instruction, application, so forth from a biblical worldview. Now, to do that, I felt the need to record three episodes. In the first, I spoke to uh, those Christians who are rightly taking this cultural moment very seriously, who want to acknowledge and deal with racism in America, past and present, And what I attempted to do was bring some clarity to some of the underlying ideologies that this moment is bringing with it. My concern was that uh, critical theory, intersectionality, uh, you can go back and listen to the first episode to understand those terms, that these things were driving this more so than Jesus, his ethic, his gospel, his kingdom. So my admonition was to follow Jesus into this moment, but just make sure that it is Jesus you are following. Now, in this episode, I want to speak to the other side of the divide, and my admonition is the same, follow Jesus, but this side, I feel the need to convince you to actually follow Jesus into this cultural moment because Jesus absolutely does care about this moment. Jesus cares for justice. Jesus cares for the oppressed. Jesus is concerned about everything critical theory is concerned about only with the different diagnosis and solution. Jesus looks over the past 400 years of American history and is righteously angry over what our culture has done to black image bearers of God. And if you want to call yourself a follower of Jesus, then you need to join him in that righteous anger, and we need to lead the way in fixing this national evil of ours. Do not Call yourself a follower of Jesus if you are not willing uh, to follow where his just cause leads. Now, in my experience, and uh, trust me here, I, I, I have a vast experience because of my background and context. In my experience, what I need to do is convince Christians that America actually does have a race problem. That it really is a unique systemic evil embedded in the story of our culture and that it really is something that Christians should be addressing. Meaning, I'm going to set aside the downright bigots and racists. When I when I encounter them, I'm, I'm called to stand up to them. I pray God gives me the courage to do so. But for my purposes here, I'm not going to try to convince the racist that African Americans are made in the image of God and should be treated as such. Uh, Speaking candidly, I don't think that demographic is our biggest problem in America. Our greater problem are those friends who truly do love Jesus, truly do think black people are not inferior and should not be discriminated against. Um, Perhaps they do have seeds of prejudice within, but they're ashamed of that, and they don't want it, and um, absolutely are willing to repent of their individual racism if and when it is discovered. But at the same time, they just aren't convinced that race is the issue we are making it out to be. We ended slavery. We overturned Jim Crow laws. We we passed affirmative action. 
We elected a black... How, for heaven's sake, how can a nation that elected Barack Obama possibly be a racist nation? And then uh, when you look at the actual statistics of black-on-black crime, the actual number of unarmed black uh, people killed by cops, you know, when you, when you look at the data the way someone like Ben Shapiro does... This whole idea of white supremacy is just ridiculous. White privilege isn't a thing, if anything, because of affirmative action and institutionalized diversity policies. Black privilege is a thing. And I think this is particularly difficult uh, for the older among us who lived the 60s. That was real racism, deserving real protests. And you look at the protests now and you say, what are you people protesting against? I mean, you know, I get the MLK civil rights that was a worthy cause, but this, this is a solution searching for a problem that simply isn't there. And then making matters worse is what I outlined in my last episode. This moment, unlike MLK's moment, has been hijacked by something that feels to you like a Marxist revolution, not a civil rights march. Whereas King's dream was racial integration and reconciliation within American civilization, the new vision that is upon us is a complete undoing of American civilization and liberal democracy. And so you see the statues of Washington and Grant be defaced and come down. You see intersectionality unite the transgender struggle to the black struggle. You see Antifa setting up a communist zone in a major American city, and you say to yourself, I want no part of that. And listen, I get it. That's why I intentionally recorded this episode second, because I think I needed to establish credibility with the ones I'm challenging in this episode. I needed to assure you that I reject cultural Marxism along with all of its implications and applications. And I hope I demonstrated that for you. It was very genuine. I I see the concern. But now, I am asking my brothers and sisters to humbly consider that, yes, racial injustice is real. It is something that the Jesus you call Lord is deeply concerned about and is calling his followers to join him in that concern as his agents of reconciliation. Now, to do this, I think I need to actually demonstrate concretely that this is so. It is not enough for me to just say, Racism, specifically systemic racism in America, is real. I need to demonstrate that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start with the fall in Genesis 3 and literally trace the story of racism all the way down to Lexington, Kentucky, 2020. If you remember my last episode, I I was upfront that the primary audience of this series were Christians in general and the members of the church I call home and its network of ministries in particular. So I'm going to go from the fall to my community and hopefully demonstrate from a biblical and historical perspective that, yes, we should follow Jesus into this moment because this moment is real and needs the justice that only Jesus provides. So let's get going. And just like last episode, I am lifting my normal constraints, time constraints in order to be as thorough as possible. So <laughs> there's your warning. This this one's a doozy. If you want to listen to it in parts, that's fine, but I, I really want to be thorough here and make my case. So uh, from a Christian worldview, the mess that is our world finds its origins in Genesis 3. Most of you 
are aware of this. We call it the fall, but what exactly does that mean? What did we fall from? We fell from our creator and our creator's design. The created ones rejected their creator, God. And fundamental to that rejection was that we wanted to dictate the terms of our existence. We wanted to decide for ourselves what was right and wrong. We took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, saying in essence, we want to be the arbiters of good and evil. Now, what happens in this new fallen arrangement is that now we become the standard unto ourselves not God. That is to say, we seek to be our own God. Now, there are a myriad of consequences to that disastrous choice. But for the purposes of our discussion, what this produces in essence is what Dr. Carl Ellis calls creaturism. Dr. Ellis would say creaturism is judging creation not according to God's standard, but to the creature's standard, particularly my standard. And because of this, creaturism is the root ism that leads to every form of ism. So so meaning there is tribalism, where I judge other tribes by the standard of my tribe. There's colonialism, where I judge other cultures by the standard of my culture. There's classism, where I judge other socioeconomic classes based upon my class. Sexism, I judge the other sex by the standard of my sex. All of these isms are manifestations of the fall and its creaturism. Creatures are not meant to determine what is right and wrong, good and evil, and judge others accordingly. That's the creator's role. When creatures do it, uh, then those not like them are judged, oppressed, persecuted, and so forth. And yes, one of the most prominent isms that has plagued the history of this world is racism. The idea of race is a social construct created by creaturism. Humanity is beautifully diverse, yet equal as image bearers of God. But what we have done with that diversity is weaponize it. We crafted an ism based upon our most easily recognizable diversity, the color of our skin. And so uh, racism is a manifestation of creaturism, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. We'll get to racism in a second. What creaturism leads to is a power struggle among the creatures as manifested in these different isms. And this is what we see unfold in the Bible after the fall. We see it immediately on an individual level in Cain's hatred and murder of Abel. But as the story progresses, we do see it systemically. In fact, one could argue that the dominant story, the dominant motif of the Old Testament is the story of God's deliverance of his people out of the systemic oppression and slavery of Egypt. So absolutely, systemic sin is thoroughly biblical. I understand that many people, conservatives in particular, dislike all systemic talk, systemic racism, systemic poverty, any systemic at all. You are quick to dismiss it as Marxist thought along the lines of what I talked about in the last podcast. But I have said this before, I I would argue that everyone believes in systemic evil. We recognize it, whether we can articulate it or not. For example, what is meant by the term fake news? The claim is that mainstream media is owned by a liberal agenda, driven by a liberal agenda, that determines the news that is shared and the way it is shared. In other words, America's mainstream news is systemically shaped 
by progressive ideology. When someone cries fake news, they are declaring a systemic injustice. Another example, if you ask a conservative how an issue uh, like transgenderism has gone from wholly implausible to aggressively normalized in the span of one generation, how did that happen? If you ask a conservative, you will typically receive a systemic answer. Liberal media, liberal education, liberal entertainment, and so forth. This is all systemic talk without the systemic verbiage. So here's the reality from a biblical perspective. Our sin is not just manifested individually, but socially. And that reality is also rooted in the beginning of Genesis. After God creates male and female in his image, this is what he tells them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Do you know what the fill the earth and subdue it is saying in its most basic form? Build culture, create systems, create structures, systems and structures that are not neutral, by the way. Systems that, without the fall, systems that would promote God's glory and creation's flourishing. So education, business, politics, entertainment, media, all of it would absolutely have an agenda, would shape the narrative, would reinforce the story, but the story would be the creator's will that would bring shalom flourishing to creation. That was the design. But as I've already said, that's not what happened. Instead, the fall happened. And what that means is not only are we now sinners infected with this creaturism, the cultural systems we create bear that same flaw. So we still do the culture-making thing, but the cultures we make are now fallen. What we now produce does not perpetuate the will of the creator, but the will of creaturism. A world filled with Corrupt people creating corrupt societies run by corrupt structures, which only perpetuates further corruption. This is why our world is so messed up. And so here is where we do start to find a little common ground with the conclusions of critical theory. Critical theory would deny everything I have set up to this point, but critical theorists have noticed that human civilization tends to order itself around hegemonic power. Again, if you don't understand that term, listen to my first podcast. But sociologists have recognized this, that creaturism tends to manifest itself in a dominant culture that owns power and owns the narrative. And the Bible does too. Only we see this as a manifestation of original sin, the manifestation of the power struggle born out of creaturism. Who owns the hegemony? the ones who won the battle of creaturism. And it doesn't have to be race. Before Europeans arrived in America, it was tribalism. If you think that pre-colonial America was a utopian world of harmonious tribes, then you're simply mistaken. Native American tribes were brutal toward one another. Tribal warfare was normative, and yes, they practiced slavery. Colonial America did not introduced slavery to America, they introduced race-based slavery. Tribal slavery, warfare slavery, uh, was practiced long before Europeans arrived. In fact, the very word slave comes from the Slavs, who were once an enslaved people in the ninth century, and ironically, as you know, were white as they come. <laughs> and so the only point I'm making is that sinful creaturism 
is a reality for every civilization. Sinners dominate one another, individually and systemically. And so what a biblical worldview calls us to do is to discern creaturism dominance in whatever context we find ourselves, and then to stand against it in the name of Jesus and his justice. In word and in deed, we are called to declare that actually no creature is Lord, Jesus is Lord, and his ways undo creaturism and bring righteousness, justice, and peace to creation. So when I'm talking to a missionary partner and friend, Mac Limbasi in Togo, he is a Christian standing against the tribalism of West Africa. And I, as a follower of Jesus, am called to look at my context, to look at America, and do the same. And so now we are narrowing down the story to where we are. What we have to start with, though, is European colonialism, specifically English colonization. There was a point in the not-too-distant past Uh, where that tiny island of white Anglos ruled the world. In the late 15th century, there was a global conquest emerged that would continue for four centuries. The strategy was very simple. Uh, Powerful European nations would arrive on foreign shores and simply declare ownership. Your land is now our land. Your resources are now our resources. Your culture will become our culture. Now, it's important to understand, it's key to the story, that Europeans viewed this as a positive advancement for the lands they were colonizing because they firmly believed in Western superiority, meaning there was a hubris to the conquest, believing that they were doing a favor to these helplessly primitive cultures. Again, that's creaturism. We judge your culture according to the standard of our culture. And this manifested itself systemically through colonization. And, of course, the most significant of these conquests was the land we now inhabit. This was to be England's greatest expansion, a new land with unbridled potential and resources. But there was a small inconvenience of people already living in that land. And so these natives were either killed, displaced, enslaved, or survived by submitting to their colonization, meaning the native culture would forsake their cultural identity and practices and assimilate into European culture. So when America was discovered by Europeans, there was roughly 150 million natives. By the end of the 17th century, 200 years later, that number had declined by a staggering 90%. 90% of the native population gone in the span of 200 years. Shortly thereafter, Colonial America, of course, revolted against the country of its origin, against England, which ended in America's independence, as we know. Now, what was rejected, though, was England's uh, system of governance. What was not rejected was England's culture of superiority. And, of course, nowhere is this more historically obvious than America's infamous history of African slavery. So Africa had been colonized. And this offered a resource much more valuable than anything the African land could offer. It offered Africans themselves. And so enslaved Africans were shipped to parts of the empire in need of free labor, uh, such as the sugarcane fields of the French and British Caribbean islands. In America, uh, African slaves were certainly present in the early republic, But slavery eventually exploded in the South because of the tobacco and cotton industries. 
Now, what you have to understand about our early history is that slavery was justified, yes, among Christians, and we're going to get into the church's shameful complicity in our next episode where I will outline our enormous failures. But anyway, slavery was justified because black Africans were literally seen as inferior and unequal, which allowed them to be viewed as property. And so this led to chattel slavery in America. Chattel slavery is different from indentured servitude. While you can find indentured servitude in the Bible, those passages are often misunderstood and misapplied. But yes, you can find indentured servitude in the Bible, but you absolutely cannot find chattel slavery. Chattel slavery is the complete ownership of a slave for life as your own property, including any children and children's children that that slave produces. And chattel slavery turned the tobacco and cotton fields of the South into an immense source of wealth for white Americans. It's very important to understand the uniqueness of American slavery from a historical perspective to understand why it is so painful. As I have said, slavery was an ever-present reality in our world, but historically speaking, slavery was the result of three scenarios. Religious slavery, the spoils of war, or debt owned, so you know, indentured servitude. Now, slavery of any form is obviously horrific, but American chattel slavery was unique in that its only purpose was to build a booming economy off of the back of slave labor. So Africans were sold in that day like tractors and backhoes are sold now. Only this farm equipment could reproduce. And hitting close to home here, uh, one of the largest markets for slaves was Cheapside Marketplace in downtown Lexington. You know that place where uh, hipster urbanites buy organic food at the farmer's market? Uh, yeah, that's that's where their great-great-great-grandparents bought slaves off the auction block. Now, before we get to abolition, let me just pause here and say, if the story ended here, and we know it doesn't, but if the story ended here, then that would be more than enough to admit race is a problem in America. Y'all, we're only 155 years removed from that. Historically speaking, that's nothing. That's less than three generations. Three generations ago, this was normative in our culture. You think in three generations, we went from hundreds of years of enslaving black people to full equality and reconciliation? I'm sorry, that's, that's naive at best and just downright denial at worst. But unfortunately, this is not the end of the story. America has its civil war, and yes, the civil war was over slavery. Don't let Southern apologists convince you otherwise. Yes, it was over state states' rights, but it was state rights to own slaves. Yes, Lincoln was no saint. Yes, Lincoln may have exploited emancipation for political agendas. Yes, all of that may be true, but the war was fought over the issue of slavery. But let's continue with the story of America's creaturism post-Civil War. We enter into Southern Reconstruction and the emergence of Jim Crow laws. There is a deep and pervasive bitterness over the Confederacy's loss, and the newly freed black population received the fury of this bitterness. Jim Crow laws legislated segregation of all public spaces, everything from uh, schools to drinking fountains, and allowed uh, white Southerners to maintain their dominance, legally speaking. But outside of legislation, there were community organizations, such as the infamous KKK, 
whose mission was to preserve white heritage and white supremacy. From lynchings to voter intimidation and everything in between, these groups would maintain black suppression and snuff out any civil rights uprising. And shamefully, as we will see in our next episode, these organizations were replete with white Protestant evangelical Christians and protected by white Protestant evangelical churches. The Jim Crow chapter of America's racism would continue for um, nearly 100 years until suppression's hopelessness gave way to the prophetic voice of Martin Luther King Jr. and the unflinching resolve of the civil rights movement, which is a beautiful movement. Uh, Many would suffer, many were martyred, including King himself, but the movement persisted until the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which outlawed discrimination in America. Now, for perspective, I'm 40. Uh, It feels old, it's starting to look old, but please let's agree that that's not too old. So for perspective, 15 years before my birth, segregation and discrimination against the black population was legally protected in the United States of America. I mean, we fail to appreciate how recent is this ugly history. But the story isn't over. I don't think anyone listening to this would deny the evil of slavery and Jim Crow. But in my experience dialoguing with people, slavery and Jim Crow are actually big stumbling blocks to admit America's racism. They remain the definition of quote-unquote true racism. You know, I lived through Jim Crow. Your generation has no idea what real racism looks like, goes the line of reasoning. And so ironically, slavery and Jim Crow, though abolished, still haunt black America. So horrific were these injustices that they offer a convenient and ever-present red herring for those wanting to discredit present injustice. And so I think it is at this point that I have my work cut out for me in demonstrating the continuation of America's creaturism via racism. And I know that my target audience of this podcast, uh, those skeptical of the cultural moment that is upon us, will accept nothing less than concrete analysis. You are weary of white supremacy remaining this elusive, undefinable, unaddressable idea in the ether of cultural dialogue. You say, show me, demonstrate in a tangible way this systemic racism you speak of. Let me take up that challenge. What American society missed was the concept of transitional justice. Transitional justice is cultural reform that seeks to repair and reconcile a previously oppressed people that is now seeking to integrate into the society of their oppression. We take that that dynamic for granted. The idea that a people could go from being oppressed in the society and then integrate into the society of their oppression, it is ridiculously naive to assume that a culture can go from enslavement and segregation to integrated reconciliation without some serious reparative work. So take, for example, the landmark Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision. This brought an end to segregated schooling, but it also brought with it a new problem. Malcolm Gladwell has a fascinating analysis of what took place. The assumption of the case was that integration must happen because these poor black kids were being deprived of the superior education of white schools, and it was unconstitutional to deny them that opportunity. 
But if you ask the black families, including the Browns themselves, they love their schools. They love their teachers. They love their education. In fact, Linda Brown didn't even want to leave her black school. She described it as a close-knit family. The point is that there was nothing inferior to black schools and black education outside of funding, facilities, resources, and so forth. But the entire case assumed that it was all about denying black kids the superior education that white kids were receiving. So as a result, in some ways, the decision ironically compounded the problem by taking black students out of the schools where they were perfectly happy and loved and content and forcing them to integrate into the strange and hostile world of white education. Brown versus Topeka was a noble cause with a hidden flaw that black education was inferior to white education. So the misapplication of the court's decision was black students forced to integrate into white schools. But what robust transitional justice would have called for would be integration first and foremost of the gatekeepers of education, school boards, administrators, teachers. These should have been integrated first so that the black community would have a seat at the table of authority. This is the only way to cultivate an integrated culture that would not be hostile to black students. Instead, the reverse happened. Black children were forced to adapt to white culture and bear the hostile weight of integration. And by the way, as an aside that I just cannot resist, I don't have time to waste here, but (laughs) I can't resist it. The parallels to racial reconciliation in the church are striking. White churches rightly confessed that segregated churches, this was wrong and antithetical to the gospel, and the church uh, made uh, right and just decisions. Bylaws were changed, resolutions were passed, and so forth. But the fallacy was that black Christianity needed white Christianity when black Christians were actually completely content and happy in their churches. And then the misapplication of the racial reconciliation movement much like black students integrating into white schools, was that we need to fill our pews with black Christians where they are asked to adapt to our culture and themselves bear the weight of this thing we call racial reconciliation. True reconciliation takes place when black Christians, yes, along with their black Christian culture, are given a seat at the table of ecclesial authority. Seminaries, session boards, publications, conferences, That is to say, integrated church authority leads to integrated churches. But I digress. I had to make that point. The greater point I'm making is that our culture missed that pivotal moment of transitional justice and has never recovered. Especially, and this is the key, because the opposite happened. One might argue that our culture was simply uninformed and had no idea how to do integration well. And so mistakes were made. But the reality is that systemic injustice continued unabated after the more overt systems of slavery and Jim Crow were abolished. For example, there's a video that has gone viral on Facebook highlighting the practices of redlining, and I'm thankful that this is getting the public attention it deserves. In American culture, uh, homeownership is everything, the dividing line between poverty and middle class. Not only this, but home equity is the primary means of generational wealth and change. Now, one of the reasons why this is so is because home ownership was one of the focuses of the New Deal passed during America's Great Depression. Here is the scenario. Everyone was broke. Many could not pay their mortgages. 
banks were foreclosing on homes left and right, homes that could not be sold, and therefore banks themselves were closing left and right. It was just all a mess. So the federal government got involved in America's housing market through the formation of the Federal Housing Administration. Essentially, this administration provided a safety net for banks by federally insuring mortgage loans. Banks could offer loans with little to no risk and were therefore more than willing and glad to do so. And so this security safety net led to the advent of 30-year mortgages at fixed rates and so forth. And suddenly, loans became affordable to the impoverished American public. And voila, American suburbia is born and a much-needed middle class between poverty and wealth is formed. Great story except for one minor detail to the story that makes all the difference for black life in America to this day. The original Federal Housing Administration manual literally prohibited properties except by the race for which they were intended. That's a direct quote, except by the race for which they were intended. Translation, this program is for white people to build white neighborhoods. You see, the federal government was now taking on the risk that banks used to bear. And so they had to be careful with how these federally insured loans were distributed. And this is what led to the practice known as redlining. Here's what happened. Maps were created and color-coded according to the risks uh, for the loans. Green areas were a go. No risk, no loan restrictions. Yellow areas were poorer communities that were a bit more risky, but still willing to offer uh, loans to these communities more carefully so. Red areas were high-risk communities that were off-limits to the program. Literally, banks could not give federally insured loans to red-lined areas on the map. So, what was the criteria for these color-coded maps? Race. Again and again, red-lined sections were determined on record, in writing, historical fact. Why was it a red-lined district? It was recorded as having the presence of Negroes. Yellow sections were poor whites. Red sections were black communities, even including wealthier black communities that had emerged uh, that were not as risky as the lower income white communities. And so what all this amounts to is for 30 years, 98% of federal housing administration loans went to white families. Only 2% went to the black community. Now, please understand, those who want concrete analysis, redlining was not a backroom off-the-record agreement among bankers. It was a legislatively protected, on-the-record, formal policy that continued post-Jim Crow and still continued informally after it was outlawed in 1968 for many years to come. Literally, friends, that's the definition of systemic injustice. If slavery and segregation aren't enough in themselves, which they are, but if you want more— How about a literal system to keep black people contained in impoverished ghettos while white America builds its flourishing middle-class family in white suburbs? Now, what's the effect of all this? It's multifaceted. First and foremost, as I've already said, homeownership is the key to wealth in America. And so black communities are the poor communities to this very day. The other big determining factor of success in America is education. Now, All schools in America receive a certain amount of public funding, but what really sets the quality of the school apart is the wealth of the community around the school. 
because additional funding comes via property taxes from that district. So wealthy neighborhoods provide a lot of funding for their neighborhood schools, and impoverished neighborhoods provide very little funding for their neighborhood schools. So unsurprisingly, predominantly white schools in America are well-resourced with quality teachers, smaller class sizes, robust extracurriculars, specialized programs, tutoring, college prep, the list goes on. Predominantly black schools in America are under-resourced, overcrowded, with very noble teachers barely hanging on trying to produce that success story of a student who overcomes the odds stacked against them. So here is the scenario post-Jim Crow until now. Little to no home ownership, little to no education, which leads to black communities with little to no hope. And what happens in communities like that? What happens in hopeless communities? The same thing that happens in white Appalachia, the predictable patterns of hopelessness. Breakdown of the family, increased crime, increased drug use, increased violence. Thus, Chris Rock's famous joke that uh, the streets in America named after the nonviolent Martin Luther King happened to be the most violent streets in America. And it's true. It's certainly true for North MLK Boulevard in Lexington. To bring this home to my community, to this very day, you can look at Lexington's redlining map from 1938 and look at the current makeup of our city, and you will see a one-to-one correlation to black poverty, crime, and so forth. So what does America do? with this impoverished, uneducated, addicted, crime-ridden black communities. We exploit them. Here's where reverse redlining comes into play. So redlining originally kept black communities from economic opportunity. Reverse redlining exploits the now impoverished black community for economic gain. So wealthy people who own all the capital, they open up payday lending shops throughout previously redlined districts. You look at the map, You look at where these payday loan shops are, they're all over red line districts. Meaning, all you poor people with no money to pay your bills or feed your destructive habits, no problem, we got that covered. We'll offer you a little two-week loan to give you some quick cash and then charge you 400% interest. You can't really sustain a job without a vehicle and terrible credit to apply for a loan. It's impossible to get a vehicle. No problem. We'll give you a car loan with no credit check, but it will be a 20% loan and leave you upside down on your car. You want a nice appliance but can't afford it? No worries, we'll rent them to you. And take take more money than the appliance is worth in the end, and then come back and collect it. Epidemic of fatherlessness, pregnancies out of wedlock? No problem. We'll fill your communities with Planned Parenthoods and abortion clinics, and we will make a fortune aborting your babies. And on and on I could go with the predatory ways we treat black communities in our country, leading to generational debt instead of generational wealth. And then, if by chance, the cultural trends turn such that suddenly your community becomes desirable to us, well, we'll just take it for our own. We'll move in. We'll tear down, renovate your homes, turn your businesses into trendy restaurants and breweries. We'll jack up property prices and rent and taxes and slowly purge you from your own community. And that's just the slow drip of gentrification. We may see fit to just seize it all in one fell swoop. For example, again, bringing it home to here in Lexington. 
there was a historic black Lexington neighborhood called Adamstown. Adamstown was inconveniently uh, located in the path of University of Kentucky progress. And so what did Lexington do? We got rid of it. (laughs) In a truly emblematic act of Kentucky's truest priorities, 80 houses were demolished to build Kentucky basketball's Memorial Coliseum. Now, again, this is where homeownership comes into play. Only 5% of black residents in Adamstown owned their homes. So the ones who profited from this expansion were wealthy white homeowners in Lexington. The black community was simply kicked out and displaced without any assistance from the university or government. But we're not done yet. When UK basketball outgrew Memorial Coliseum, it was time to move to the larger downtown Rupp Arena. For that to happen, we need a big parking lot. For that to happen, an additional 130 homes from Lexington's predominantly black South Hill neighborhood had to go. And again, only 14% of the homes demolished were owned by the black residents. So again, the black community was just displaced. White owners profited. So two times in the name of Kentucky basketball, our city has destroyed black communities because they were inconveniently located. And so from the advent of creaturism in Genesis 3 to white colonialism to slavery, Jim Crow, redlining, housing, discrimination, this is where we Americans find ourselves. This is our unique, dark history of creaturism. And notice I have built my case without even touching racial prejudice. That absolutely plays into this. Look, you can, you can share whatever video you want on Facebook that you can find of, of a black voice saying they don't experience prejudice in America. I'm going to listen to my friends. And every single black friend I know and love has stories to tell. Every single one. I tell you what, I'll, I'll give you one. Again, I'm just not going to worry about time. I'm just going to give you one that I'm comfortable sharing because this friend has shared these stories publicly. Russ Whitfield is a black pastor in my denomination, an amazing man. He once pastored at a predominantly white church in a predominantly white wealthy community. When he first arrived and started attending their parties, routinely people who didn't know him would just assume he was the help at the parties. Now you need to know that Russ may be the sharpest dresser you'll ever meet. Incredibly gifted, but nevertheless, people would hand him their used plates, cups, silverware, assuming he was the hired help to serve the party. People would toss him their keys, assuming he was the valet for the party. I mean, just humiliating stuff. And every black friend I know has stories that they have shared with me like that. The only way to maintain there does not remain an underlying prejudice in American culture is to stay on Facebook and away from black friends in the black community. But regardless, I intentionally didn't argue from the prejudice side of things which I know to you feels notoriously nebulous, nebulous until it hits home. (laughs) My my go-to prejudice question for white friends is whether they would have a problem with their children marrying a black spouse. If there is even a check in your spirit, then you've answered the prejudice question yourself. Anyway, prejudice aside, if you evaluate our history through the lens of a biblical worldview, which tells of our proclivity towards creaturism, both individual and systemically, there is no other honest, unbiased conclusion than to admit that racism against black people is America's core historic sin. I'm not an anarchist, 
and I'm not a nationalist. I do not accept the all-or-nothing fallacy that America is either evil or perfect. I can espouse the greatness of America, and I can say America has a race problem, a problem that America has not handled well. What has America done with this problem? Our woefully inept solution has been to over-police, over-prosecute, over-incarcerate. We've spent 400 years traumatizing a people group, and then when they respond in predictable ways to that trauma, it isn't met with compassion but over-incarceration. Does that paradigm of trauma make sense to you? Uh, Take a demographic that I bet you probably do have sympathy for, um, our veterans. We send them off to fight in war. They come back bearing the effects of that trauma, riddled with PTSD symptoms, unable to function in society, high rates of addiction, crime, divorce, mental illness, and so forth. But their problems evoke our compassion and our earnest desires for real proactive solution. But when it comes to black trauma in America, when it comes to 400 years of corporate trauma in America, there is no real proactive healing, redemptive, compassionate, culture-changing, virtue-forming, systemic justice to undo systemic injustice solutions. Just more laws and more punishment. And yes, when I say no compassion and solution, I'm including white liberal elites who claim to care. The black community is to liberals what the pro-life community is to conservatives. Votes exploited. Promise after promise after promise and never ever delivering. Because as soon as they deliver, they lose their power over that demographic. It is just so patronizing what liberal elites do to the black community. They just, they have to be viewed as their savior. The the only hope of the black community is is liberal elites. They perpetuate um, the dependency, the victim mentality, the welfare state they seek to create exacerbates and reinforces poverty cycle and government dependence. Their cultural appropriation and virtue signaling exploits black oppression for woke self-righteous credentialing. No liberals don't care like they claim to care, especially when the care comes at their own cost, particularly the cost that relational love demands. The saying is true. It really is. Southerners have a problem with the black community, but love the black individuals they get to know. Northerners love the black community, but get uneasy and have a problem with black individuals they actually encounter and know. So conservatives, liberals, north, south, across the board, from the moment these image bearers of God arrived on these shores in slave ships to this very day, it is one infuriating mess of injustice. So what to do? Clearly, if you listen to my first episode, I do not believe critical theory has the resources to handle this monumental problem. Woke politics brings about as much healing as Donald Trump. So what's the way forward? the kingdom of God. Only God's kingdom can undo the devastation left by fallen kingdoms of this world and their creaturism. We must recapture Jesus's vision of justice, a vision largely ignored by American Christianity over the centuries, as I will demonstrate in my next podcast, but a vision that remains our only hope nonetheless. And in the next episode, I will do my best to unpack that vision for us. 
But for today, my only aim was to convince the unconvinced. And I really hope I've done that. I hope you can admit this is real. This is evil. This is something Jesus cares about. And we who claim to follow Jesus as Lord don't have a choice but to likewise care. I just want you to care. I'm just asking for compassion. And then we will discuss what it looks like to move from compassion to action in the next episode of Every Square Inch. 